Shit Platypus Says, Episode 59. Welcome, everyone. My name is Lisa. I am one of your co hosts of the Shit Platypus Says podcast, the commentary on the commentary of the left. This brand new episode includes a discussion hosted by the editor-in-chief of the German Platypus Review, Tobias Rochlitz, to discuss with our members Jan, Stefan and me the German Platypus Review 23, which was a special issue on the gender question. Center of the issue 23 is the panel discussion on gender and the left with Roswitha Scholz, Sarah Rukai, and our member Stefan, as well as two interviews with Tove Soiland, who is a Lacan Marxist, and Koshka Linkehand, who is a materialist feminist. We talked about how the new left survived in the millennial left generation, the Heideggerian aspects of Lacan, and about the millennial left's focus on so-called materialism. Our attentive followers have probably noticed that the Gender and the Left panel was translated and published in the most recent Platypus Review, issue 158. So please revisit the panel and the respective PR issues and spread the word. And now, enjoy the discussion. Welcome to the Shit Platypus Says podcast. My name is Tobias and I'm the editor of the German Platypus Review, Platypus's forum in print. In this segment, I will discuss this year's January-February issue 23 of the German language Platypus Review on the topic Gender and the Left with my guests Lisa, Jan and Stefan. Hi everyone and thanks for joining. Hi, thanks for having us. Hello. Hey. Okay, so PR issue 23 features the following content. First of all, an interview with Koshka Linkerhand, who is a materialist feminist, writing for different leftist publications and publisher of the collected volume Feministisch Streiten. On the relationship between feminism and socialism, the left's failures and achievements and the absent tailwind of history. Second, we have an interview with Tove Soiland, who is a for former research associate of the, at the University of Innsbruck, Austria, focusing on feminist theory, political economy, and the relationship between Marxism and psychoanalysis, and who is also an activist in the collective Linksbündig. The interview covers the left stance on the corona measures, the epoch of post-ideological totalitarianism, and the need for a pluralist left in discussion. And last but not least, we have a panel discussion titled Gender and the Left, which the Platypus Leipzig chapter organized in April 2022. On the panel, Stefan Hein, a Platypus member who is here with us today, Sarah Rukai, a freelance author who writes, among others, for the anti-Deutsch publications Jungle World and Bahamas, and Roswitha Scholz, a member of the Wertkritik or Value Critique group Exit, and main proponent of the so-called critique of value dissociation, Wertabspaltungskritik. They discuss the relationship of the concept of gender to the left, the achievements, failures and problems of the various waves of feminism, and the question of whether Marxism can serve as a relevant means of addressing the gender question today. Lisa, Jan and Stefan were all involved in the initiatives that made it into uh, Platypus Review number 23. But before discussing each of the three texts, Lisa, since you were involved in all three of the initiatives, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about how they came about and why they made it into one issue. So what we encountered in our local chapter in Leipzig was a lot of splits of leftist groups on the question of gender, on the question of queer feminism versus materialist feminism, radical feminism, and how the second wave or the, the memory of the second wave feminism and uh, the third wave feminism played out in our local 
leftist environment. So we wanted to address this on a panel and we, we invited thousands of speakers um, as, as it felt. And as it turned out, everybody wanted to talk about gender, but in the end, nobody wanted to talk about gender. And luckily, we ended up with Roswitha Scholz uh, participating in the panel, as well as Stefan and Sarah Rukai, as you told us, Tobias. But we also asked and invited Tove Soiland and Koshka Linkerhand, who were not able to speak on the panel, but were willing to talk with us in the form of an interview. So this is how the interviews as well as the panel came into play. And I would say that the interviews are in the whole spirit of forming the panel on gender and the left. Okay, and, and maybe to follow up on that, I mean, uh, in the past, there were like uh, platypus panels, for example, around the question of like sexual liberation in different places around the world. And I just wonder, like, why gender and the left now? And if I might add, uh, we also had uh, panels on the question of Marxism versus feminism and women, the longest revolution, question mark. Yeah, so we wanted to bring... Um, the postmodernism into the center of the discussion and how these social issues were addressed by the left. There is this word Geschlecht in German, so we, we do not differentiate between sex and gender, but we have one word, which is Geschlecht. And I do remember that the, the article from David Face, Transgender Liberation, um, we, we encountered this moment only a little bit later, a few years later. So we tried to host the conversation on exactly what is addressed in, in David's article in a way. And we had a, yeah, a vital discussion on campus and in our left environment, we thought who might be able to speak uh, on that. And we wanted to especially focus on the, on the other part, um, on the part of gender um, in this discussion and how gender might have appeared as a progress. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks for this, uh, for the short introduction, how the, how the issue came about. Um, now we are going kind of Uh, text by text and later we will we will enter into a more general discussion on the whole issue but we want to give uh, especially our english-speaking listeners who don't have direct access to the, the text um, an impression of what were the the main topics discussed so we will start with the interview with uh, koshka linkerhand And maybe to start, so Linkerhand interestingly talks about like two major influences that, that kind of dominated her political development. One of them is the background in the yeah, anti-Deutsch scene in Leipzig. And the other one, which is especially interesting for, for the issue we are talking about today, is that um, she uh, was majorly influenced by Roswitha Scholz and by Roswitha Scholz's critique of value dissociation. So Jan, can you tell us a little bit about Linkerhan's political trajectory? As you mentioned, um, the two main influences of Linkerhan are the anti-Deutsch or anti-Germans and uh, Roswitha Scholz's value dissociation theory. So in the interview, she talks a bit about her like political biography She was a teenager in the 90s. At school, there was a anti-German group called uh, Tomorrow, and they talked about things such as uh, a critique of anti-Americanism as well as anti-Semitism. And then she mentions that one of the first theory books that she read was uh, Roswitha Scholz's Value Dissociation Theory. And... Uh, Roswitha Scholz is associated to uh, the German value critique and uh, Scholz is using the theory of value critique to address the specific unfreedom of women in capitalism and she tries to explain it through the dissociation of unpaid re reproductive labor and productive or industrial labor and for her this division of reproductive and productive labor explains uh, women's unfreedom even though they are formally or legally regarded as equal under capitalism. 
So because women do most of the socially disregarded and usually unpaid reproductive labor, their status within society remains in a way subaltern or subordinated to the man and his wage. Um, yeah, so according to Scholz, uh, this division of labor remains fundamentally unaddressed in Marx's analysis of political economy, such as does Kapital. Um, and therefore, one might say that her um, value dissociation uh, theory is a critique of classical Marxism, but as well sort of Marxist or uses a Marxist analytical framework. Okay, maybe so much about Roswitha Scholz. Um, I think the anti-Germans are pretty well known, so I'm not gonna take so much time to talk about them. So yeah, as, as I've said, those are the two main influences. And uh, Linka Hunt tells in the interview that what sort of both of them have in common is that they try to analyze and understand society and so social structures. And that's sort of how Linka Hunt wants to proceed in, in her theory or in her thinking about the world as well. And from both, she learned that Marx and Adorno are authorities if one wants to analyze or talk about the world critically, then um, those two are sort of the two main persons. And on hindsight, uh, she told us that she found found it quite authoritarian to assume that one must uh, read Adorno or Marx at first. But at the same time, as I understood, she would still agree with it. I think that's also quite interesting point, right? That Linkerhand mentions during the interview also her discontents, especially with the anti-Deutsch, but also like, um, let's say, theoretical differences with uh, Roswitha Scholz. So uh, what would you say, like, where in the spectrum on the left does Linkerhand find herself today? If you would uh, look at her, like, theoretical analytic analytical framework, I think she's a bit more associated to what you might call radical feminism, But um, as she points out in her book that you mentioned earlier, Feministisch Streiten, which uh, in English means something like feminist disputing, um, she wants to try to bring queer feminism and radical feminism together in a way or wants to bring them into a sort of like productive form of a dispute. So one might say that she's sort of positioned in between both of them. Mm -hmm. Thanks. And, and another um interesting point I found in the interview was that um, this whole question around feminism at large, but especially about first wave feminism um, came up and the question, what was the relationship of feminism to Marxism or to, to socialism? Lisa and you, uh, Jan, who, who conducted the interview, you, you quote Luxembourg actually, yeah, critiquing feminism um, and arguing that, that the contradiction is between labor and capital, not between men and women. Maybe you can touch a little bit upon like how she reacts to that or how, how does she see like this relationship? Um, when we mentioned this phrase or this saying of Luxembourg that uh, that she said something like, well, I imagined that uh, Clara Zetkin would have walked out of the room after hearing Rosa Luxemburg saying something like that. So in a way, she seems to pitch Clara Zetkin's position against that of Rosa Luxemburg, although they were both part of, I would, I would say, the same political movement. Um, so that that seemed a bit strange to me. But at the same time, maybe something a lot of leftists today would say. Um, so I would say the the opposition between Marxism and the first wave of feminism that we in Platypus would stress is a bit diluted or or at least like Lincoln would say, there's not such a big difference as you in Platypus would maybe point out. Um, As far as I've understood it from what she said, um, the relation of both seems to be a bit like that the liberal or bourgeois feminist current was more focused on social reform, whereas like Marxists or like Marxism was more interested in like 
social revolution and then so much focus on reform. While she seems to partially agree with liberal feminists, she still points out the necessity of transforming society in a more radical way that probably most of the liberal feminists would have anticipated or wanted. But when we asked her about like what sort of radical transformation of society she wants to like strive for or achieve, she remained quite ambiguous and said, well, that's something we still have to figure out. And it's something that we need to find out while doing it. And uh, she remained very, yeah, she remained very ambiguous about calling it a Marxist or a socialist utopia and uh, said uh, something like, that's not a commitment I'm willing to make. The question in a way is like, how does Linkerhand sees the, yeah, the trajectory of the, of second wave feminism and um, connected with the emergence of uh, third wave feminism and especially what kind of role does she ascribe to the left in that context? She said uh, that the second wave of feminism was mostly about the social role of the female like as an abstract in society and the fight for sexual freedom but also for like legal and social equality and that's something the second wave inherited from the first and Linkerhand concedes that none of these fights really were completely successful not even today so to some degree she's uh, saying that the third wave emerges as a reaction to the defeat of the left as a whole so not only the feminist movement but as well the collapse of uh, the soviet union and the seemingly disintegration of any sort of revolutionary subject so neither the proletariat nor women seem to be adequate as a political subject for the left anymore and that's how third wave feminism emerges and then she also relates it to um, neoliberalism and its emergence. Specifically, this uh, historical epoch, right, of the emergence of neoliberalism and in a way the transition from second wave to third wave feminism is also a good way um, to transition now for now to the uh, interview with uh, Tove Zoiland. I think uh, it fits because um, Zoiland herself was politicized in the 1980s. But before we go deeper into that, I would like to ask you, Lisa. So what I found interesting reading the interview with uh, Tove Zoiland is that there seem to be two uh, yeah, quite different threads running to the interview, connecting with each other and, and contributing to each other. And the one thing is Zoiland's critique um, of the corona measures or more her disappointment of the left's reaction to the corona measures during the pandemic like the lockdowns and so on. And on the other hand, there is a quite deep, uh, let's say, theoretical debate um, about uh, Lacan and his followers on the left, and especially how he conceptualizes modern subjectivity. So I think it would be interesting if you could say a little bit more how this, maybe this constellation of these two threads came about, like was it intended or wasn't it intended? And then maybe about your understanding, how they uh, connect exactly. So what's interesting about Soyland is that she is a follower of Lacan and Marx, and she is linking the two in the tradition of the Ljubljana school, of which we know Zizek is maybe the most famous representative. For Soyland, the pandemic facilitated and catalyzed um, the demise of the anti-capitalist or extra-parliamentary left. And she draws a parallel between today's situation and Lacan's warning to the student movement in the 1960s and 70s. So he warned them that they might produce new forms of domination through and as a result of their struggle. Soiland found Lacan's notion of the negativity of the subject very useful to understand our current moment, so the, the current moment of the left, um, especially how the left adapted and collapsed into neoliberalism. I should say something more about the notion of the subject with Lacan. What she took from Lacan is that the subject is always unconscious. 
and it is driven by something that he calls the real or unconscious desire. We nevertheless unconsciously shape the world with something that is not meaningful by which we are nonetheless attracted and in which we find unconscious desire. So for Lacan, it is not society that creates limitations of human activity, but rather that there is something inherent in our desire itself that revolves around a loss. And this loss is the very root of all human activity. So for Soyland, Lacan is needed because he prepares us to understand the limitation of all these struggles that we encounter on the left. And there is a great article that I would recommend everybody to read. So it's an article from Andreas Wintersberger and Stefan, Psychoanalysis and Marxism. And um, I will quote from the article. It goes as follows. We never get what is promised to us and what we expect from others. It is, in fact, impossible for us to get it. This hypothesized impossibility keeps our desires and activities as well as history itself alive. Herein lies the ontologization of the nature of desire, that is Lacan's rigid fixation of the essence of the human's unconscious drive structures. So Soylan calls it a trap to think that we could consciously liberate and transcend our unconscious desire and those limitations. And she thinks that this is what capitalism falsely promises us, but can never keep. And so for the left, starting with this premise could only lead to failure. So, and this is why she does go back to Lacan and, and bring him into this current moment. So, and if I get her correctly, she looks back um, on the left that she herself participated in and resumes in the same spirit that Lacan warned the new left so that they might achieve something that they don't aim at or, or aim to. And um, her analysis of this failure needs and includes Lacan neg negativity of the subject. But this criticism is more expressed on a theoretical, philosophical and psychological sphere that um, does lead the left to false politics. So I would say that these are the threats that she emphasized bringing these phenomena today and um, the new left with Lacan together. I want to raise two points I think that are very interesting with regard to that, what Soyland mentions in the interview. So first of all, she says that this insight, let's say, of Lacan that you just described, Lisa, that it was on the part of Lacan like a conscious outcome of the failed revolutions, right, of the failed revolution uh, of 1917 to 1919. Uh, so Lacan, in a way, in some sense, self-consciously connects, yeah, what he thinks is like an, yeah, I would summarize it maybe as an impossibility of freedom, right? That's for him a specific outcome of the failed revolutions. And the second point she raises here, I think you touched a little bit on it, is like that Lacan himself was in a way in discussion with the new left. He warned his students like that were mostly of uh, like Maoist orientation kind of to try in a way the same the old left did because that might cause outcomes that like those uh, leftists never intended. In that sense, I find very interesting the figure of Lacan because he he seems to be in a, like in retrospect in a way in a in a certain relation to Adorno or what to what Adorno did during the new left, and I have the feeling that often what people accuse Adorno of was actually kind of the the project of Lacan, right? Because Adorno is often accused of like just being pessimistic and telling the students, oh, you know, it won't work. And so so on the surface, like Adorno and Lacan seem to say very similar things, right? Like that the students in their activism and what they're doing might just cause things politically they didn't intend to. But then on a deeper level, it seems what Adorno does is like he's pointing to a social condition that makes it 
like very problematic, like to quote unquote, to continue the struggle, right? Like namely the absence of the subjective factor, like the party, which has such a huge uh, impact on the objective conditions that revolution seems very problematic, but that's a, that's a social condition. Whereas Lacan seems to tell his students like, don't try it because it's just ontologically impossible. And this is a very like interesting parallel, I think, between Adorno and Lacan, but at the same time also like a very, very deep uh, difference. Yeah, I think you, you touched upon a very crucial point here. So there is a dialogue uh, within the new left with um, some authorities like Adorno and Lacan, and they both might have very, very different projects um, that they worked on. It's right that Lacan himself appears in a time of absence of the revolutionary subject after the failure of world revolution and also um, the dissolution of the class society in, into the masses. And Soiland also describes this experience of the failed revolution as very central for his thinking because it forced Lacan and now also Soiland that because she thinks that there has happened a necessary theoretical progress with Lacan with, with uh, respect to historical Marxism, so that the failure of the revolution forced them to move away from the idea of the necessary false consciousness that still assumes that the subject could become conscious and transcend its ideology under different social conditions. So the idea with Lacan is rather that the subject is not simply in control of itself, but it's more or less subordinated to something that he calls the real or the, the unconscious desire. So I would summarize that for Lacan, the attempt of the world revolution in um, 1917 to 1919 was in a way a, necess a necessary failure. And um, because these Marxists considered desire to be something social and not ontological. And and these Marxists assumed that social relations could be overcome through a conscious process of change. And his critical intervention to his Maoist students was to prevent them from trying again. So while political Marxism did emphasize transformation and becoming, Lacan countered with being. I would say that this is more in the spirit of Heidegger, maybe. And it's not accidental that um, also Heidegger uh, becomes influential in the 30s with being in time. And that's why we do ask specifically about the relation between the negative dialectics of Adorno and the negative ontology with Lacan. I would argue that the 30s and what Heidegger does express does continue in the 60s and 70s. There might be a continuity between the two. And it is very clear anti-Hegel and anti-German idealism and in a way anti-freedom. I have a passage that I translated uh, from the interview where she says, uh, by linking Lacan and Marx, I can understand the analysis of capitalism without having to adopt the Marxian telos of history, which goes hand in hand with an image of men that I do not want to share because I tend to consider it totalitarian. From this, we must correct the humanistic reading of Marx with the help of Lacan negativity of the subject. So Lacan is an authentic expression of the failure of Marxism and the loss of the historical subject but it does also affirm this failure. The other part is also, I remember Horkheimer saying in Dämmerung that, you know, the fact that there is no subject does not mean that there should not be one. And I would highly question, was this failure of world revolution really necessary? So for Lacan, yes. Yes, like I think it's fair and important to say that Lacan is kind of an external uh, opposition to the Communist Party in France, just like all of what we would now call postmodernism, post-structuralism. And so in a certain way, they're sympathizing with the quote-unquote subject, 
which they, in a very Marxist way, see as an expression of the subject, right? Like the party is somehow the subjective factor of history. And I think it's fair to say that while Lacan is mostly influenced by Heidegger, he was obsessed with Heidegger, right? He was literally obsessed with him. It's also that he oriented himself through Marxism. And while I, I also would agree that in essence, it's anti-Hegelian, a lot of the the founding figures of the, the French postmodernists actually met in a seminar on Hegel by Alexandre Kojev. One point with, with Heidegger um, and Lacan, and I think right like what Lisa said about like this there's a necessity for desire. The subject cannot jump out of a desire which is constituted through unconscious impulses and orders uh, which arise out of this contradiction of what we take to be a reality and what Lacan calls the real that we can't really understand, right? And which is like traumatizing us, so to speak. And I feel with this, Lacan is he's worse than dystopian, right? Because what he's basically saying like, this is one of the first truths of Buddhism, right? Like, all life is dukkha, suffering, incomplete, by essence. But at least Buddhism, uh, in its case society, 2,500 years ago, had some idea of kind of getting out of it and beyond it, while Lacan is like, no, I'm a scientist and I found out it's eternal. Can We can never get rid of this. And I think that's very interesting because... If we contrapose him with Adorno, right? Adorno is saying in this time, which poses a task to humanity, which could only be solved by politics, socialist politics, which is absent, even religion appears kind of cheerful. Even this promise of redemption of religion is beyond our dire times. But Adorno says, like, he's critiquing the condition of reality and not saying that it's an eternal ontological truth. And I think that's very important when we take like the, the difference of the two. Yeah, Lacan's subject uh, is, as Soland um, says, the subject of the phantasm, while Adorno's subject is the subject of the phantasmagoria of the commodity form, if you will, right? The basic structure of everything under capitalism. And that also means the basis of consciousness. Adorno, following Lukács, um, says that the commodity form brings form a specific form of consciousness. And in a certain way, if the, we just take this as a frozen snapshot, you kind of get what Lacan is saying, right? Because Soland is also, um, she's saying that um, Marxism thought that humanity would get like an insight into its condition through changing the economic conditions. And Marxism postulated, Marxism postulated that, that's true, but Marxism also postulated that this included the idea that such an economic transformation would be brought about by the free act of the majority of humanity itself. I think Solon would reject this idea, which is fine as well, but it's important to keep this process-like character of the possible transformation in mind, right? Because for Adorno, consciousness, just as um, the commodity form, if you unfold it in history, is contradictory. It's not simply identical with itself. But this not being identical with itself for Adorno expresses the potential and the drive to go beyond itself beyond that forced identity and that contradiction which it implies. And yeah, for Adorno, the limits which we are seeing, which for example Lacan is expressing, are the limits of capitalism, which appears to quote Nietzsche as the eternal return, if you will. And up to now, capitalism has not only des uh, reintegrated every opposition against it, quote unquote, but made it the source of its rebirth. And that's the true point about Stalinism that Soland uh, invokes via Lacan. But I think it's also an important point for the following conversations on the impact and importance on feminism and how far it was capable of changing or not changing capitalism.
I would also um, emphasize, right, that um, that we that we don't simply want to dismiss Lacan or something, right? I mean, uh, we are rather here in general in, in Platypus to open up questions. But having said that, one of like the yeah the questions or problems that come up on like the gender and the left panel is this whole question of I would say like nature and society, right? How sex and or gender are in a way influenced by society and vice versa. And I found one very point you made on the panel, uh, Stefan, kind of a very seemingly very short point, but I had the feeling that it actually brings up a lot of the things that were talked about on the panel uh, was that you said that gender is neither simply natural nor simply constructed but it is produced and constantly reproducing like kind of through society and by uh, humanity. And maybe a good kind of starting point to talk about the panel would be, maybe you can elaborate, like, what do you mean by that? And why did you think it was important to bring it up on the panel? So if I don't think it's natural and I don't think it's simply constructed, what is it? And I came back to the Marxist point, right? Like everything we are living in is society and we are producing society. The commodity form under capitalism, according to Marx, brings forth a certain kind of consciousness. So it is produced through our mode of production, the mode of production of commodities, which is in crisis under capitalism. And the idea right like beyond it is um, or the uh, the underlying idea is that there is a first and second nature and people then come to think that these are ontological things there is a first and a second nature but these are thought figures right the idea is that we think there must have been something like nature because we know that society developed Right? It didn't always exist for humanity. But then society took a hold of everything, even though, and maybe foremost, the question of the two sexes and the two genders. Because, right, like for most cultures, there were two. In the times when we did not have natural sciences, there was an idea of men and women. But it was not natural, right? Of course, the physical constitution of people played a role. But men and women were part of a divine cosmic order. And they expressed this. Humanity isn't like always starting from scratch, so to speak. It's not that free men and women are born into the world. And then they're kind of adjusted to society, that it would be a simple learning process, which I think is a thought which Zara Ruka brings up on the panel, if I understand her right, that gender is simply a learned thing. And I would say that's not true, because, right, like, that women can and should do the same work as men in a lot of fields right now, more than ever before in history, I think causes a fundamental change to how women and men are constituted. And this is never natural, being right over all the periods of history and time, in a certain way untransformable, identical with itself. And it's never just constructed, right? Like there are not people making up ideas and then you can fit people into it. That's also not really how it works. So I think what we're working through is always like the last idea of what men and women are and how these ideas relate to the process of production in society itself. So for me, the whole question of sex and gender cannot be posed without this understanding of society, that humanity through society is producing its concepts including that of gender and sex and the way in which society is structured also changes that because these roles in the end serve to keep up the production process which i think is the thing that all of the three speakers on the panel were trying to deal with 
I mean, you already mentioned now, like the, you kind of um, saying that production is a wider term, right? It, it actually includes anything that in some way relates to, um, to human existence. And one thing I found interesting that comes up on the panel um, that also refers a little bit to right what how Jan introduced the word critique that this question of Marxism comes up. I had the feeling in relation to that, and especially this question of traditional Marxism, right? And in what sense Marxism was able to grasp this question of gender and sex. And there were, yeah, there were kind of different uh, attitudes towards um, both, if you can separate them, like the meaning of Marx for us today and then the meaning of Marxism for us today. I, I think there was um, a certain division between Marx and Marxism, as is common on the left. But to, to pick up on one point, why I think this is not the only antagonism or opposition, so to speak. Um, I quote Adorno from Negative Dialectics on the panel, something along the lines um, where history seems the most historical or appears to be the most historical in its essence, it's natural, and where things appear to be the most natural, in essence, they are in fact historically formed. Right. So, and I think this is a very interesting thing about like the whole um, gender conversation, let's call it like this, because this idea that there's the nat natural basis for men and women is accepted as like an eternal nature, as if it would have always been true in society, which it wasn't. And on the other hand, we see that whatever people do, and I think it's not because people are stupid or unwilling or lazy or whatever, every attempt to get beyond the uh, opposition division of sexes and genders seems to reproduce exactly this in, as we heard, right, like more fragmented ways, but it seems we cannot leap out of this. And what holds this together is capitalism, I think, which is the overarching logic, so to speak to which all of the other questions are subjected. Which does not mean that the single points wouldn't be important, right? It's just like they don't have autonomy, Marx claims, toward or from the production process. I think Sarah Rukai and Roswitha Scholz are both upholding capital, das Kapital, by Karl Marx. But this would be a point from Kapital. And so I think they're not just struggling with historical Marxism as an attempt to change the world, but also really with Marx, with what Marx himself was saying, which again, they might be right about, right? So they could say, yeah, I read it again. And you're right, Stefan, it's really what Marx write, but I still think it's wrong because it doesn't solve our problems right now. Fair enough. But yeah, then there also is this point that I think both Rukai and Scholz are sharing the idea that Marxism is yesteryear's ideology, that we have gotten beyond it, that we need to further get beyond this, that it's unhelpful for either the case for free society or the liberation of women, that we cling on to the, the struggle of historical Marxism. One thing I found very interesting there is that both of them were talking about the second and third wave, both clearly favoring the second wave. But I think what both of them are missing is what Jan referred to earlier, um, is the first wave of feminism, which also was clearly anti-socialist, right? Like feminism as the idea of women have a shared political interest Contra every other social group is an anti-socialist and an anti-Marxist statement. While people like Weishaltz and uh, Rukai were sure that Marxism was a dead-end street, they also weren't, I think, really dealing with the idea of a feminism which was already a thing 
back in the early 20th, early 20th century, and this was a split in the movement for women's liberation of the 19th century, right? Uh, because the movement for women's liberation had its historical roots in socialism, like Charles Fourier, Mary Wollstonecraft, and I would have loved to talk about this, but it didn't come up here, so when something's not talked about, that always is a marker for something interesting being there, I think. I wanted uh, to talk a bit more about like how Scholz and Rukai favored the second wave against the third wave. Maybe in doing so, there's a danger of like overstressing materialism against something like maybe that's more associated to the third wave, which is like discourse or deconstruction. All of uh, the speakers we, we mentioned seem to want to pitch materialism against discourse and say that the major mistake of the third wave is that they only look for language or for ideas, but don't consider enough the materialist nature of gender, which... I don't know, might be sex. Um, I'm not very sure, but I think there's also a danger in that because um, what Marx and others understood under materialism is not nature, is not ontology. And that we cannot understand nature as something that's just there and that's materialist against the sphere of ideas or the sphere of language or the sphere of society. But um, and I think um, Stefan mentioned that before by pointing to Adorno that we also have to understand nature as something that is mediated through categories that can only evolve within society. So we don't have this like immediate approach to nature and can say like that is nature and that is society and it's something that is clearly distinct and we have to stress materialist, i.e. nature, against uh something like discourse i think that's somehow an oversimplification i think that needs to that needs to be taken very seriously if we want to talk about materialism and maybe this distinction between nature and society that somehow comes up um, in these like in pitching second and third wave against one another i think might be as well part of like the historical inability of the left at the moment to make any meaningful change so maybe that's somehow because because we're not able or the left is not able to change society in a meaningful way anymore it seems like both of the two so society and nature have sort of like fallen apart and become these reified terms that are somehow like very independent from one another yeah and uh, following up on this point of the mediation of nature exactly right like when i want to eat like a normal human being i don't need to find something to eat i need money and when i want to function as a normal individual in society i don't need work but i need a job Right, like it's it comes down to the most basic tasks of what we think means being a human or in society um, that is highly mediated and in a historical way, which it did not always used to be. I want to take up on your thought, Stefan, as you mentioned that sometimes things that were not mentioned do speak loudest to us. You know, you mentioned that the first wave feminism was not mentioned. And I do think that this is very crucial because these different political horizons that are at stake when socialists organized women and um, these bourgeois feminists organized women. And also the whole, the whole topic of politics was very flat during all the interviews in a way. So, you know, what does it mean politically to read Das Kapital? What does it mean politically to bring in Lacan today? What does it mean politically to talk as radical feminists? And there was one question at the panel where all the speakers were asked what their political horizon is. And what opened up was the whole question of the relation of Marxism and liberalism in a way. Because when Scholz answered that her political horizon is, you know, she has not really 
a praxis, so she she cannot very forward some political advice. But what she wants is equality, no discrimination, um, in a way, free expression of the individual. And these are all categories that classical liberalism did also address. So why should we at all talk about Marxism when this is the political conclusion? The absence of first wave feminism and also like the legacy of Marxism in some sense maybe means that we are still very much stuck with the new left. Also like the whole this question of like second and third wave feminism in a way, what what to prefer um, I think this is also interesting in the in the Linker Hunt interview because I think she's like very honest about that she's not sure right where kind of to what tendency she wants to connect herself and she's um, yeah dissatisfied with the political expressions of all kind of the the splinters that emerged uh, during second and third wave feminism. And also we had this like quite uh, deep discussion about Lacan now as a figure of the new left. I think that also shows this very well that both Roswitha Scholz and Koschka Linkerhand actually dis uh, ascribed the term of uh, secondary contradiction to quote unquote traditional Marxism, right? So they kind of accuse traditional Marxism of a secondary contradiction. And I think the interesting thing about it is that this a uh, term of secondary contradiction is actually a term that stems from Maoism, which is again a phenomenon of the the new left, right? The, the Western Maoism. As we in Platypus, when we do the reading group, we start with the new left readings. And why do we do that? Because this is the closest to us, right? Like we are extremely influenced in all kind of respects uh, by the new left. Yeah, there is a continuity of the new left Stalinophobia in a way. So one anecdote Jan told us was the image of Linkerhand when we told her the quote of Luxembourg, um, that there is this dispute between Zetkin and Luxembourg. But the other anecdote she told us was that she had met an, a young Stalinist who told her, you know, women are not a class. So where where is the contradiction here? So there there seems to be also an maybe conscious maybe unconscious identification of marxism with stalinism and i think this is also happening with scholz in a way where you know she she wants to cut out all political marxism and wants to go back to you know the the marx that did not ontologize labor that did not constitute the class as class because we want to transcend the class that comes from pastone I think this is this and 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 this is also playing into the the all Lacan Marxism thing in a way. So this is the the parallel here and how the how the new left does in a way continue with the millennial left. But the millennial left just repeated the failure of the new left. And I think that this was this is something that came out in PR23. That's a highly interesting conversation and a lot of things are falling into place for me, right? Because now for me it comes up, uh, Rukai on the panel says that Platypus, specifically but not only Platypus, seemed to be stuck in 19th century industrial capitalism. While she was rejecting like all of the third wave as like unnecessary bullshit, if I understood her right. And that we should go back to more like 60s, 70s, second wave feminism, right? Like, which she called radical feminism, which as uh, Jan brought up is a term. But she also seems to be fine with the analysis of capitalism in the 19th century, which also gives us a hint, right? Like that there's something like a stable economic basis in her concept and then a superstructure, which is just like modeled after it and kind of reflects what's going on and is kind of secondary. And I think for her, right, like this idea of, as well as for Scholz, the idea of like the natural sex is so deeply muddled into and sunk into this economic basis 
that this is something interesting and essential to talk about while things like gender are mere ideology, so to speak. What I also found very interesting is it's true like there were like bits and pieces and charts and fragments of the times of traditional Marxism. And so, for example, uh, Schultz says that Adorno did believe in a dictatorship of the proletariat, right? Like that it was a necessary step towards human emancipation. And she rejects that, just as Marx did. But she takes both of them to be of incredible importance for her theory. So this is a huge difference to how we in Platypus are trying to approach the question. And I think that's also very important for us to see, right? They are not like our approaches in a certain way are not in competition. They're just like on different levels. Scholz and Ukai think about like, we need to analyze and understand, as Jan put it right, like the material conditions right now. And speaking and thinking too much about history seems kind of idealist to them, right? Like ascribing too much of meaning to it, which reminds me of Lacan, since we talked about it, right? But what it clearly means is also, right, like they think this is not important. They think for how they want to make society a better place and achieve... Um, liberty, equality, and fraternity, right? For them, the political convictions of the thinkers they're, uh, they're relying on is not important. While this is something we push in Platypus, right? Our point would be Adorno is a Marxist and is a Leninist because he held on to the dictatorship of the proletariat. And that's at the heart of his politics, because it's at the heart of his idea and critique of history. And what I found interesting on this panel is that it comes out, both of the other speakers have an idea and a critique of history. But for them, it's, you know, like, it's obvious, it's unmediated, and it's it should be clear to us that it should be like this. We in Platypus look um, at history through the lens of the left and we think about uh, the left as like maybe like the most important historical force that's able to transform and shape the world in which we live in. And I think that becomes less and less obvious or more and more obscure we talked about how like most of the speakers or most of the persons who were interviewed uh, were clear about that the 20th century expressed somehow the mistakes that were made by like the Marxist left or the old left. But when it came to try to understand like how the possibilities for emancipation considering like the problem of gender or like women's liberation then um, the word neoliberalism came up a couple of times but it seemed to be much more unclear if neoliberalism in a way could be as well understood as a product of the new left in the same way that maybe like the whole authoritarian state phase of the mid 20th century could be understood as a product of like maybe Stalinism, but also like the New Deal or like social democracy in maybe the, the Western countries. The millennial left in some way, maybe in its best potential, tried to take up the legacy of the new left and to transcend it. Uh, so in Platypus, we have like this anecdote, which is a, a, a true story, right? That in the new um, SDS that was founded in the mid 2000s in the US, that there were old new left veterans like telling um, the young new SDS uh, cadres like to not repeat the mistakes of the new left. Yeah, now we seem to be in a situation that the millennial left really is dead. And I think like one question for us as platypus, but which is also relevant, I think, to the left in general is like, how is 
um, the Zoomer generation taking up all these splinters we were talking about now, right? Because they really appear as splinters of the 20th century, century left, especially of the new left, right? Like, how are they going to take up this legacy? I do have to come back to the accusation that Rukai did, so that we are stuck in the 19th century. And my first thought on that was maybe yes and maybe no. So maybe the whole history is stuck in the 19th century, but maybe the left is stuck in the 20th century and repeating it and repressing the 19th century. Maybe this has to be worked through and this would be the the task of future generations. And it's not the millennial left and it's not the 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 new left that was a good mentor or educator on the left on this i think my nightmare is that there is a kind of backlash against third wave feminism we're going to have a very shallow very weak very vulgar very conservative return to what people imagine second wave feminism to be and then we're going to be an even shallower resurrection to see a, an even shallower resurrection of third wave feminism, right? Of queer theory. Going back to Adorno, Adorno says like you cannot neatly um, divide progress from regress under capitalism. It's exactly through progress that regress is happening. And for me, I would really like hold on to this point of quote unquote gender queer theory. The most important thing, at least in the most developed countries right now, is not your biological sex, right? Like, but like your identity of how you identify is much more formed through certain roles, behaviors, ways of life which are ascribed to your sex and therefore being kind of a constitution for your gender and for me this seems like the logical conclusion from how marxism describes the importance of the way we are producing and reproducing this society we're living in a society of bourgeois rules under the means of industrial production in which we are becoming more and more alienated from our own doing and ascribing it to kind of outward forces or influences. And in a certain way, gender is a regress, right? Like, stay tuned for the panel. I try to explain it through Freud. But um, it also was this idea of, haven't we grown beyond this? natural idea of how we are constituted and i think queer and gender theory was very very much reacting to real changes which were going on which neither second wave feminism nor marxism were able to grasp at that moment and therefore if we're trying to ignore why this became important it is going to haunt us right like classic foreclosing those who are not able or willing to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And then it becomes fucking nature, but it isn't. It's a repetition of history. So uh, I guess we have to wrap it up at that point. Thanks, Jan. Thanks, Stefan. Thanks, Lisa, for joining me. I think it was a very fruitful discussion. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks. Thanks for the discussion, everyone. Bye. The Platypus Affiliated Society organizes reading groups and public fora focused on problems and tasks inherited from the old, new and post-political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today. Platypus publishes articles in our English and German-speaking public fora in print, the Platypus Review. The Platypus Review hopes to create and sustain a space for interrogating and clarifying positions and orientations currently represented on the left, a space in which questions may be raised and discussions pursued that would not otherwise take place. 
If you want to contribute something, please reach out to editor.platypusreview at gmail.com. If you want to respond to anything that is said, please reach out to the podcast team via social media on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or send us an email to shipplatypusess at gmail.com. Shipplatypusess, written as you speak. And we can arrange an interview with you. The next episode will come soon and see you. Bye. Oh.